The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, it's lovely to be here tonight. Um, the topic tonight is compassion. And uh, it seems that's the topic that's up these days. Uh, after I had decided that's what I would talk about, I heard that Gill did a day-long on cultivating compassion, and his article in the newsletter this time is titled Cultivating Compassion. So, uh, however, I don't think that's a problem. I think we all can use all the compassion <laughs> that we can. So, uh, I'd like to begin with a reading from Charlotte Joko Beck, a very well-respected Zen master. She says, In spiritual maturity, the opposite of injustice is not justice, but compassion. Not me against you. Not me straightening out the present ill, fighting to gain a just result for myself and others. But compassion a life that goes against nothing and fulfills everything. It's a good thing for us to remember. The compassionate life goes against nothing and fulfills everything. So the word compassion comes from both Latin and Greek and means to suffer to undergo or experience with. So it means to endure with another. And again, from Joanna Macy, compassion literally means to feel with, to suffer with. Everyone is capable of compassion, and yet everyone tends to avoid it because it's uncomfortable. And the avoidance produces psychic numbing. Resistance to experiencing our pain for the world and other beings. I think Joanna coined the term psychic numbing, where we don't feel anything because we refuse to turn towards the suffering. It seems overwhelming. It can be enormous, and it can seem very overwhelming. And so, as she suggests, there's a tendency for all of us to turn away from it and not experience it. It's painful. Much of what I'm going to say tonight comes from this book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, by Karen Armstrong. Uh, You may know her as Karen Armstrong. (laughs) I heard her interviewed with Bill Moyers, and he called her Karen, so that must be the pronunciation. Karen is a religious scholar, lives in England. She's a former nun, and she is the, um, the originator of the Declaration for Compassion. And um, there's a website you can go to, declarationforcompassion.org. She, in her study of religions, determined that compassion, or the golden rule, 
is the basis for all of the world's major religions. And the Dalai Lama also discovered the same thing. He wrote a wonderful book, Toward a True Kinship of Faiths. If anybody's interested in interfaith, um, it's a very excellent book. And he talks about the same thing. That compassion is what all the world's traditions have in common. And by seeing this, by understanding this, we have a a basic commonality from which to work and from which to bring us all together. The Dalai Lama suggests that if the world's religions can't get along, how can we possibly expect nations to get along. So, the compassion in different religions may be stated in different ways. Um, Typically, it is stated something like the golden rule, that is, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Or the reverse, do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. And Karn suggests that cruelty coexists in human beings with compassion. That's important to remember, too, that we all have the capacity for compassion just as we all have the capacity for cruelty. And as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we don't want to water the seeds of cruelty, but water the seeds of compassion. In the Buddhist tradition, Kuan Yin is the female representation of compassion. And it is Kuan Yin who hears the cries of the world. We talk about compassion as the quivering of the heart and that suggests that there is an impulse with compassion to alleviate the suffering. It's more than empathy. Empathy is feeling or um, understanding what someone else experiences without necessarily that impulse to relieve it. In compassion, there is that quivering that leads us to want to alleviate that suffering. And it's important with compassion that we do more than just understand it, that we do more than theorize, but that we actually act. And I think this is why Karen's book... um, can be a practical guide, a practical help to all of us. Because often we feel the compassion and we don't know what to do. Or we feel the compassion and it's rather overwhelming. And hopefully out of these 12 steps, there'll be some, uh, some uh, sense of what we can do to develop our compassion and to act on it. Since Karen is a religious 
scholar. Um, she has studied Buddhism in depth. She wrote a book on the Buddha, as well as one on Islam, and one on um, the case for God. So she's very, very knowledgeable. And she uses the Brahma Viharas as kind of the foundation for her 12-step program. She refers to them as the four immeasurables, which we also know them as, but typically we say the, the Brahma Viharas. She says, she suggests, that the Buddhist greatest insight was that to live a life of sila, or morality, was to live for others. And she, she talks about um, the history of religions and compassion, and talks about Confucius, before the Buddha, describing um, human beings as as um, each person as the center of expanding concentric circles of compassion. And of course, when I read that, I immediately thought of our metta. That's exactly how we describe our metta, as expanding concentric circles of uh, loving-kindness, loving-kindness ki- or compassion. And she says, even before the Buddha, the sage kings of China realized that to change the misery all around them meant to begin with transforming themselves. We talk about that a lot in Buddhist practice, that it begins here. It always begins with changing ourselves. I have to say I was a little bit surprised and impressed to learn how much of what the Buddha taught was in the culture previously. It didn't necessarily originate with the Buddha, although, of course, he expanded on it. In the Jewish tradition, Hillel said, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to your fellow men. That is the whole of the Torah. So it's important that we all realize that our tradition is not the only one, whether our tradition is Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or Islam, we're not the only ones to emphasize compassion. It is throughout the world's religions. Both the Buddha and the Christ talked about and said in a little bit different ways, what you do to the least of these, you do for me. So they both suggested that doing for others, no matter how ordinary, was doing for them. So, 12 steps. Step one is learning about compassion. Learning about its history, which I won't have time to go into. Um, Learning 
what compassion is like. So that means seeing it, feeling it, studying it for ourselves. Both giving and receiving compassion and not receiving it. What does it feel like to not receive compassion? Confucius suggested that others must be regarded like the self, all-embracing and excluding nobody. She suggests Jesus is a bodhisattva figure, servant of suffering humanity. Step two, look at your own world. See the suffering. And again, in Buddhist understanding, we always begin, don't we, with our own world. So Karn talks about see the suffering in our own families. Perhaps we've all had that opportunity (laughs) during the last week or so. See the suffering in our own families. And we could say, see how we contribute or perhaps try to alleviate the suffering. See the suffering in our workplace. And again, that's not hard to do. I work with people that come and talk about the enormous suffering created in their workplace, created in so many different ways. Um, for themselves, for others, for the group at large. And often they're looking for, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with the suffering that goes on in this particular workplace? And be aware of the suffering in our nation. She talks in her book a lot about the implications for compassion in our world, in our nation and in our world, in our politics, in um, how we deal with other nations. Huge, huge topic. But it begins, of course, with seeing the suffering in our own nation. So, really what we're talking about is the first noble truth, right? The reality of suffering. Seeing the suffering that exists. Not turning away from it. Not denying it. But looking at it. Looking directly at the suffering. It's the breaking heart that allows the compassion to flow. But I think it's the heartbreaking that we all want to avoid. And yet, when we turn toward it, 
when we allow the heart to break, that allows the compassion to come forth. Step three is compassion for yourself. And I think it's important to note that this compassion for yourself is very early in the steps. Only after looking at compassion, knowing it well, knowing, studying compassion and suffering, then compassion for ourselves. Because as we say, it's very difficult to have compassion for anyone else if we don't have it for ourselves. And sometimes people find that's the hardest place, the hardest time to have compassion. So she suggests that we make a list of our good qualities, our achievements, that which we can honor and uh, support in our life. And also that we look at and accept our shortcomings. Perhaps what we don't do so well. And have compassion for those things. Perhaps that's the most important. To be able to accept our limitations because we all have them. So compassion for what we can and what we cannot do. She says that compassion is the best way to dethrone the self. I like that phrase, dethrone the self. If we focus on others all day and every day, this is a phrase that she uses over and over, all day and every day, focusing on others. So compassion becomes the main focus of our life. Step four is empathy. Developing empathy. And I think it's important to make the distinction in Buddhist understanding between empathy and compassion. Empathy is that ability to understand the suffering, the pain of someone else without, as I said, necessarily the impulse to relieve it. Compassion has that impulse, that desire, that response to want to alleviate the suffering. She says, we cannot begin the quest for enlightenment until we let the ubiquitous suffering around us into our minds and hearts. That's a precursor to face, to allow the suffering that is everywhere, that is all around us, into our hearts and minds. She suggests that that Christ on the cross is the symbol, the um, uh, a powerful image for the suffering of humanity. And she talks about 
the Greek plays, the Greek tragedies, being a way to stimulate compassion and empathy in the audience. The Tibetans suggest that compassion is the inability to bear the sight of another's sorrow or suffering. And she talks about Albert Schweitzer finding it so difficult to see and accept the misery all around him, especially the animals. And this is what led him to become a doctor and work to alleviate the suffering in Africa. And of course, we remember our own suffering so that we have empathy for others in their suffering. Mohammed was orphaned as a child, farmed out to relatives, and marginalized by family and his tribe. Gandhi was thrown off the train in South Africa because coloreds were not allowed to sit where he was sitting. So she uses these figures, these great leaders, and the suffering that they experienced that helped to bring forth the compassion that they taught. Our own pain becomes an education in compassion. Do not turn away any request for help. It's a tall order, isn't it? Do not turn away any request for help. Step five, mindfulness. With our mindfulness, we can observe the blocks or the hindrances to our own compassion. Compassion is a natural human response. Studies have been done where people have been shown pictures of others suffering, cruelty or whatever, and found that it is a natural response to feel compassion. (laughs) I don't know what it is. It's an automatic, natural response for people to feel compassion when they see pictures of suffering. So we see clearly through our mindfulness how much happier we are when we are feeling loving and compassionate. It's important to notice And then we work to develop those qualities. Step six, action. We must put compassion into action. 
You can do it in very simple, ordinary ways. It doesn't have to be anything grand. But just beginning to act in kind and loving ways. Um, I'm reminded of the story that probably you all saw in the paper, and I guess it was on the news too. We were talking in San Jose about it the other day, of the person that went into a department store and paid off the layaways for other people and, and then apparently went around and just gave people money to buy things. And, and I don't know, then did it expand? I think it went to others. Amazing, huh? Not such a little way, actually. <laughs> For someone uh, that has a lot of money, a very wonderful way. But we can all do it. We can all act uh, in small kind ways that can make such a difference. A smile sometimes um, can mean so much to somebody. Uh, Just a simple gesture, a simple gift can mean a lot. Uh, One of the things that I always enjoy doing at this time of the year, I bake a lot of persimmon cookies. (laughs) And I go down to St. James Park in San Jose, which if you know San Jose is a park um, north of town where the homeless tend to hang out. And I just take a plate of cookies and go around and offer cookies. And it is one of the most fun things to do. You know, it's so simple. I just bake cookies and and... Without exception, people are so grateful. They really enjoy it. Um, they thank me for coming down. They, they notice, of course, that they're homemade. And, and they just really appreciate it and enjoy it. And I'm always touched by the simplicity. It's such a simple act. And yet it brings myself and them such joy. So we organized a little group. We're going to go on Friday, a bunch of us, and bring cookies and oranges and whatever else. Something that that can be so meaningful, and yet it's not hard at all. It's very, very simple. So she suggests that there are three ways to, um, to incorporate action. And the first is to do one act of kindness every day, maybe for a week, some period of time, and then increase it to two, and then increase it to three, and so on, until um, we're acting compassionately throughout the day. The second is, she says, refrain from doing what we would not want others to do to us. Again, the reverse of the golden rule. But a very good thing to keep in mind. Do not do to others what we would not want done to us. And the third is to change our thought patterns. To change them from blaming to compassion. Uh, 
to change however they need to be changed, to be more compassionate, dropping perhaps the judgment, the criticism, and being open to another perspective, being open to someone else's experience, belief, whatever. Step seven. I'm going to have to go a little bit faster to get through them all. I think this is really important. She titles it, How Little We Know. So, recognizing how little we know. Not in a put-down way, but just seeing, in the scheme of things, how little we know. Probably all of us, to some extent, have had that experience, right? The more we study Buddhism, say, certainly for me, the more I realize there is to know. Um, So being aware of that, that no matter how much we know, there's always so much more. And she says, religion is at its best when it encourages us to question and hold with awe the mystery of life. And it's at its worst when it's dogmatic. She, she says that Socrates said the only reason he could be called wise was because he knew that he didn't know anything at all. And again, Albert Schweitzer, the world is inexplicably mysterious. So again, the aim is threefold, she says, to recognize and appreciate the unknown and the unknowable, at least the unknowable at this point in our history to become sensitive to the overconfident assertions in ourselves and others. That can be a big one, huh? So often we and others assert so strongly, we're so certain that this is the truth. And it seems to me the times that I've done that in my life are the times I've been wrong. (laughs) And so often the times that I've been a little hesitant, I've been right. (laughs) But to remember that, when we feel or when we assert the most strongly, mm, be careful, be careful. We might not be right. And to become aware of the numinous mystery in every human we meet. Isn't that nice? To remember the Buddha nature, the divinity in everybody that we pass. Step eight, how should we speak to one another? Big one. But since we talk about that a lot in Buddhist practice, I won't say a whole lot. Uh, What she says is very similar to what the Buddha taught about speech, that it be kind and gentle and truthful and timely and helpful, not harsh, etc. 
that our aim be to understand, not to be right or not to convince. Uh, We remember Gregory Kramer, who teaches insight dialogue, a way of mindful speech as we're speaking with other people. And Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, also a way of speaking compassionately and mindfully. Step nine, concern for everybody without exception. Reminds me of equanimity. We practice metta or compassion for everyone, not just those we like, not just family members or people we're close to, for everyone. That's why the neutral person in metta and the difficult person so that our loving kindness, our caring, goes out for everyone. She says, Mohammed said, You have been made out of male and female and formed into tribes and nations so that you may get to know each other. Nice way of seeing it, isn't it? So you may get to know each other. So by getting to know each other, we can understand, we can have compassion for each other. And we can let go of the tribe, let go of our nationality, our strong attachment to however we identify ourselves and let go of the ego. Step 10 is knowledge. Knowing our own tradition's history. This can be important also. Understanding that our tradition has had a difficult past, a difficult history also. We have not been perfect. We have had struggles. And there have been times that we have been less than compassionate as as a group. Think of the Crusades, the witch hunts, um, invasions of other countries, many things that have been done in the name of religion so that none of us can say that our way is so perfect. Our way is the best or only way. So she suggests an exercise that we choose one other nation, ethnicity, or one other tradition, and get to know it well. Study the food, the dress, the customs, the rituals, the beliefs, etc., 
and really get to know it well. Because knowing another group leads to understanding, and understanding leads to compassion, whereas ignorance can lead to fear and cruelty. It just so happened that I think a few months before 9-11, Channel 9 did uh, an hour, an hour and a half program on Islam, on Mohammed. And I watched it. And I was so grateful afterwards that I had, because I had a very different view of Islam from what unfortunately got perpetuated after that event. And I had seen it, you know, prior to 9-11, so it wasn't with any bias. It was just purely an informational program. Um, They have showed it a couple times since, and I always encourage people to watch it, because it's very objective and um, very, very instructive. And I found that because largely of that program, because I didn't know anything about Islam before that, but because of that, I did not develop all the biases that were so prevalent and continue to be, unfortunately. So knowing another group, I do a lot of interfaith work, and I have come to understand so much more about Judaism, about numerous other religions that I knew nothing about prior to that. And I said to Gil one time, you know, the more I do this interfaith work, the more I appreciate Buddhist practice, which is true, I do, and the less attached I am. It's interesting, both. I appreciate it, and I also see the value of many other traditions. Um, You know, as the Dalai Lama says, there have to be all kinds of different religions because people are so different. <laughs> and so Buddhism is best for me, but that doesn't mean it's best for everybody. Um, and this is what I appreciate about Buddhist practice. I think it is perhaps the most open, the most tolerant tradition, at least that I know of, and I really appreciate that. Step 11 is recognition. And and this is what I said a moment ago, recognizing the uh, divinity, Buddha nature, um, the numinous mystery, however we want to say it, within everyone, within every human being. And the last is love your enemies. (laughs) Meta for the difficult one. And perhaps it's wise that she left it for last, for 12, perhaps the most difficult one for us. But we remember that hatred never ceases through hatred, but through non-hatred alone. So we can at least show restraint and respect for our enemies, um, remembering not to do, even to our enemies, what we would not want done to ourselves. We remember Nelson Mandela, who came out of years of imprisonment 
not with the idea of, of uh, retribution, of getting back at his captors, but instead began the Reconciliation Commission. Very, very important. And the Dalai Lama refuses to make an enemy of the Chinese. We have to forgive over and over and over again those that harm us in any way. That doesn't mean, as Jack says, that we have to have anything to do with them. (laughs) We may not. But we must forgive over and over and over. And Karn suggests that Martin Luther King had said that that was the only answer to the world's problems, to be able to forgive over and over and over. Easy to say and not so easy to do, but something to aspire to. So... There's much more I could say, um, but we're out of time. So I just want to say that it's a lifelong project to become a compassionate person. I think it's important to remember that, that it's something we practice over and over. Forgiveness, compassion, over and over. And remembering compassion for ourselves when we fall short of our own ideal, our own goal. But just seeing it, accepting it, perhaps next time we can be a little more compassionate. And at the same time, recognizing, honoring when we are compassionate. Remember the Buddha taught that it is important to acknowledge when we do do things well or when we do have these loving, compassionate states of mind. Just as important to recognize that as to recognize when we don't. Maybe even more important. So, if compassion never ceases to flow, then that is meditation. Meditation is not just sitting in the lotus position with eyes closed. Real meditation exists in the midst of dynamic activity or life. So, I know that's a lot in a short time, but I hope the 12 steps are inspiring to you. And... um, Perhaps maybe some of you will even want to read the book. I couldn't possibly do it justice in 45 minutes, so I encourage you to. Thank you all. <laughs>